Julian Day, 245-5431, 11.56pm. Patrick and Monica are in the kitchen. Tim and Ian are observing the moon from the garden. This week's task is for the astronomers to classify 10,000 galaxies in Galaxy Zoo. 4.13 a.m. Tim and Ian are in the garden. They have been classifying galaxies for 7 hours and 49 minutes. If they successfully complete the task, they will get an extra £10 in their research budget for next week. Jotcast, entering your dreams with Megan Argo, John Field, Jan Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Roy Smith. The Jotcast, September 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jotcast. I'm Jen Gupta, and joining me today is Roy Smith. Hi, Roy. Hi, Jen. Welcome back to the Jogcast. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be back. So it's over a year since you left Manchester now. What have you been up to? Oh, I've done lots of things. Uh, currently, I work at Astron, uh, which is in the Netherlands, a very nice part of the Netherlands. Uh, it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere, but that's what makes it so fun. Right. <laughs> um, and as you might remember, I still work for the University of Manchester. I'm just stationed at Astron because I get to play with the radio telescopes of Westerbork. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, so that's an array of 14 telescopes. And it's actually very good for observing pulsars, which is what I'm still working on. Yeah, so that's why you're in the middle of nowhere, for no radio interference. For, well, <laughs> I don't think there's <laughs> any place in the Netherlands where you get no radio interference. Uh, but yes, that's one of the reasons to, okay. that it sticks to a minimum. Well, it's glad that you're staying in astronomy. So many people seem to be leaving. That's true. Yeah, yeah. it's a real shame. Um, talking to people who are leaving or have left, um, all of us at the Jogcast are trying to organise a date for Jod Pub, which is going to be just a meet up in the pub with listeners. We're wait- I'm waiting to hear back from Stuart, Megan and Nick, the original Jogcasters, for a date. So unfortunately, it's going to be in September, but unfortunately, I don't have a date for you. So keep an eye on the forum and on Twitter and on Facebook. And when we have a date, as soon as we know a date and location, we will let you guys know. In the show this time, we learn about kinky vortons from Jonathan Pearson and find out what you can see in the northern and southern night sky this month. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, which came first, galaxies or black holes? massive magnetar progenitor, and pulverized planets. In the history of the universe, the question of which came first, galaxies or supermassive black holes, is somehow reminiscent of the old chicken and egg problem. It has been observed for some time that the mass of the central black hole correlates with the properties of the host galaxy, suggesting that their formation may be linked. But did galaxies form first, with black holes being created in the centre? Or did black holes come first, with galaxies forming around them? Black holes are objects with such a strong gravitational field that nothing can escape, not even light. So-called stellar-mass black holes are created when massive stars explode, but the supermassive black holes which lie at the heart of galaxies can be many millions of times more massive than the Sun. While we may not be able to see them directly, we can see their effect on surrounding material. Studies of the motions of stars near the centre of the Milky Way show that there must be a massive object at the centre of the galaxy. The observed stellar velocities can only be explained by an object of some 4 million solar masses. Our galaxy's central black hole is currently quiet, but others in more distant galaxies are far more active. 
But, although we know they are there, exactly how they are formed is still a puzzle. Models where black hole seeds formed from primordial stars cannot explain how billion solar mass black holes formed so quickly, before the universe was even one billion years old, and direct formation by gas accretion at the core of a protogalaxy requires specific conditions that are unlikely to have been the case in reality. Now, in the August 25th issue of the journal Nature, Lucio Mayer and colleagues describe simulations which have provided a possible mechanism. In their model, the collision and merger of early protogalaxies produces just the right conditions for supermassive black hole formation, without invoking special conditions, such as the suppression of star formation. The collisions in their simulations show that a merger rapidly drives large amounts of gas towards a central, unstable disk through a spiral-shaped instability that rapidly draws material into the core until it undergoes gravitational collapse, forming a black hole on timescales of 100 million years. As well as providing a suitable formation mechanism, the simulations also reproduce the observational result that smaller dwarf galaxies are too small to form central supermassive black holes. The inflow of material in these smaller mergers is below the threshold required to trigger and support the spiral inflow, seen in mergers of more massive systems. When stars more than eight times as massive as the Sun run out of fuel at the end of their lives, they explode as so-called core-collapse supernovae. The nature of the remnant that is left behind depends on the mass of the original star. Those with initial masses between about 8 and 25 times that of the Sun are thought to produce compact neutron stars, while those above 25 solar masses would result in stellar-mass black holes. But astronomers studying massive stars in the active star-forming region Westerland 1 have discovered an example of a neutron star that formed from a star at least 40 times as massive as the Sun, a star massive enough that it would have been expected to form a black hole. The team, led by Simon Clark of the Open University, have been studying stars in Westerland 1, the closest known superstar cluster, located at just 16,000 light-years away, and containing hundreds of massive stars. The cluster was formed in a single star formation event, so the stars all have the same age, making it very useful in star formation studies. As well as massive stars, the cluster also contains several binary stars, and a magnetar, an unusual type of highly magnetic neutron star. The team studied several binary systems in the cluster, estimating the masses of the stars in each system using the measured orbital velocities, since the heavier a star, the faster other objects will move in orbit around it. The more massive a star is, the sooner it runs out of fuel and explodes, so, if all the stars in the cluster are the same age, the star which exploded to create the magnetar must have been more massive than the remaining stars. Using their observations, the astronomers calculated that the magnetar's progenitor must have been more than 40 times as massive as the Sun, raising questions about just how massive a star has to be in order to form a black hole. Such massive stars could form neutron stars instead of black holes, but only if they can lose more than nine-tenths of their initial mass before exploding a supernovae. The proposed mechanism for the formation of the magnetar in Westerland 1 is that the progenitor was initially part of a binary system, which has since been disrupted. Such a binary companion would pull material from one star to the other, and result in sufficient mass loss for neutron star formation. In their paper, accepted for publication in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, the team point out that there are several scenarios for how this mass transfer could occur, and further observations of binary systems in Westerland 1 should allow the possibilities to be narrowed down. Stars form from gas clouds which collapse under gravity, becoming hotter and denser as they collapse, until conditions reach the point where nuclear fusion can begin and a star is born. For some time after a star begins to shine, it is surrounded by the remnants of the gas cloud and a disk of dusty debris, visible in infrared observations. However, the stellar wind eventually drives away this material, and the disk disappears, 
so observations of older, more evolved stars, would not be expected to show infrared emission above that expected to be generated by the star itself. But such an excess is exactly what is seen in observations of a certain class of evolved close binary star systems. These systems, known as RSCVNs, consist of two stars orbiting in close proximity, orbiting each other every few days, close enough to be tidally interacting. In a fraction of these systems, observations show an excess amount of infrared emission that cannot be explained by standard stellar models. The excess observed is, however, what is normally expected from a debris disk. The catch is that the stars in these systems are old enough that they should have long since blown away any surrounding debris disk left over from the star formation process. So where is this emission coming from? A team of astronomers, led by Marco Matranga of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Massachusetts, carried out a survey of ten such binary systems, and found three that showed evidence of debris disks. The stars in these binaries are separated by just three million kilometers, one-fiftieth of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, orbiting each other every few days, always keeping the same face towards each other, much like the Moon always shows the same face to the Earth. They are similar to the Sun, but somewhat younger, with ages of between one and a few billion years, and much stronger magnetic fields, which drive powerful stellar winds. Previous studies have suggested that as the stars spiral closer together, the gravitational variations could lead to the disruption of any surrounding planetary systems, resulting in catastrophic collisions, which could create a new debris disk. This new study, published in Astrophysical Journal Letters on August the 19th, shows evidence of just such warm, dusty debris disks around three binary systems in observations carried out with the Spitzer satellite before it ran out of coolant in May 2009. The astronomers also observed two systems that were reported to have similar infrared excesses in previous IRAS studies, but found no such excess in the new observations. Models of dust grains in such binary systems show that disks created by planetary collisions are likely to dissipate on timescales of between tens and hundreds of years, so the authors suggest that the apparent disappearance of the infrared excess in these two systems could be due to the fact that the disks have dissipated in the years since the previous observations. And finally, since the Moon's orbit around the Earth is not perfectly circular, the distance between the two bodies changes, and the apparent size of our nearest neighbour varies. But observations from NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter show that the Moon may literally be shrinking. The Moon was much warmer when it formed in the chaotic environment of the young solar system, and has cooled slowly over time. It is thought that as it cooled, the Moon shrank in size during its early history, but recent observations show that this cooling process may have caused more recent tectonic activity. Images from the orbiter have shown features known as lobate scarps, features characteristic of a contraction of the lunar interior. Such features were first discovered near the lunar equator in images from the Apollo missions, but the new data show similar features at much higher latitudes, confirming such scarps are a global phenomenon, and making a global contraction the most likely explanation. The images also show scarps which cut through craters, suggesting that the Moon has undergone relatively recent tectonic activity due to the ongoing cooling processes, possibly as recently as a 100 million years ago. Based on the new images, researchers estimate that the distance between the Moon's centre and its surface may have shrunk by as much as 100 metres. Thanks for that, Megan. If you've listened to some of our shows over the summer, you'll remember the July Extra show, which was done by work experience students here at Jodrell. And one of the people who was interviewed was Jonathan Pearson, and he talked about all the crazy cosmology and weird theories that were going on at the moment. But he didn't really have a chance to talk about his own research. Luckily for you guys, Stuart managed to talk to John just before Stuart left, and now we finally have that interview here for you. I'm joined by Jonathan Pearson, who's a PhD student at Jodrell Bank. Welcome, Jonathan. 
Hello, yeah. You're working on theoretical astrophysics. I am, yeah. It's all crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that involves lots of very, very complicated things that makes people's brains explode trying to get their heads around it. So we've, we've set you a challenge of trying to explain what it is that you're working on, which is going to be quite a challenge because people like me have a hard time understanding it. So let's, let's see if we can, we can do this. Now, you work on something called kinky vortons, which are yeah. an exciting-sounding thing, and that's to do with dark energy. Do you just want to tell us a bit about the background of what this is? Yeah, okay, so it's a model of dark energy. So dark energy is, is basically an invention of a stuff in the universe. So you can go out there with a telescope and look at a couple of galaxies, where you look at galaxies a long, long way away, and you find that they're accelerating apart. So it's not because the galaxies are actually moving, it's because the universe is expanding and accelerating. So that's the space between the galaxies is, so the, is increasing as time goes on. Yeah, so the space between the two galaxies is expanding. So if you imagine a balloon and stick two gold stars in it and blow up the balloon, the gold stars move away from each other. It's not because they're actually moving, it's because the balloon is expanding. So the problem is, what makes those gold stars accelerate away from each other? What makes the galaxies accelerate away from each other? So the first place, a good place to start is by considering what the universe is actually made of, the stuff that we know about. So the simplest place to start is what you're made of, which is what's called baryons. That's protons and neutrons. And that's what all the galaxies and stars are made out of. It's what you're made out of. It's what your coffee cup's made out of. Everything around you is made up of baryons. So that's one sort of stuff. The other sort of stuff is radiation, so photons. And that's light. I mean, it's a bit weird to think about something made, being made out of light, but it's, it has an energy and it contributes to the total content of the universe. So that's two things. Um, now, you can actually go out into the universe with a telescope and measure how much of the universe is made out of these sort of stuff. And you find out that it only makes up 4% of the total content of the universe. And so you've got to ask the question, what's the other 96% of the universe made of? It's made out of something we don't understand. It's not made out of the same sort of stuff as you and I are. So, so a lot of very clever people basically came up with two words both of which are basically labels of ignorance. One of them is called dark matter, and the other one's called dark energy. So dark energy is responsible for the stuff that's making the galaxies accelerate, and dark matter is an extra stuff inside galaxies which provides an extra force in there. So dark matter was suggested as a way to keep galaxies together, because looking at how fast they seem to be rotating, they seem to be rotating too fast for the amount of mass that we could see, and the light and the stars and the dust in the galaxies. So we came up with this dark matter, and as you say, that works out as about 25% or so of the total content of the universe. Yeah, which leaves another 75% or something. So this, there's another 75% of the universe which we still don't understand. So we've, we've already had to invent dark matter, and that counts for about a quarter. But then there's a 75%. And basically, we just call it a name. We call it dark energy. So dark energy is actually the name for ignorance. It's a, it's a name for the for the quarter of the universe, which you, three quarters of the universe, which you have no idea what it's made of. It's quite a lot of universe. That's a lot of universe. It's most of the universe actually. And so one of the main things you know, we know, it's got the property of actually being sort of like anti gravity. So whereas normal matter has positive gravity, so two things gravitationally attract, which is exactly why you're sat being pinned on to the, the floor now. <laughs> well, our listeners hopefully are, are walking around, apart from if, if they're on the International Space Station, they're all walking around on the surface of the Earth due yeah. to the wonders of gravity. Yeah, because of gravity. So gravity is attractive. But if something is attractive, it, that can't make two things accelerate apart. So what we wanted was an idea to, make, to, to explain why two galaxies accelerate apart. So one of the crucial properties is basically it's got a negative gravitational field. 
So it's anti-gravity, basically. It's a load of anti-gravity in the universe. So 75% or something of the universe is made of this sort of almost anti-gravity type stuff, and we call it dark energy. Then, once you've given this a name to your ignorance, you've got to work out what it is. You've got to produce sort of theoretical models, and then you've got to go away and test them. And so there's loads and loads of different models. Some of them actually sort of try and say that, well, maybe Einstein's general relativity wasn't right. So they sort of try and modify uh, how we understand gravity. Uh, other theories sort of invent substances in the universe. So they invent subst- a substance which has this sort of anti-gravity property. And those sort of basically fall, those are the main two classes of these models of dark energy. Either modify gravity, so ignore general relativity, uh, because it might be wrong, or you invent a new substance. And so the stuff that I work on is inventing a new substance, or trying to understand some of the uh, models that have been proposed, some of the theories that have been proposed to be this new substance. So you're looking, you're looking at one of these possibilities. Yeah. And as we said at the beginning, it's called kinky vortons. Yeah, so there's lots and lots of different models. There's lots of different theories. And one of them is called, is this kinky Vorton model. It's this sort of, it's, it's actually called a, a domain wall model. And kinky Vortons are a domain wall. I'm going to try and explain right. a little bit that, about that a bit later on. Do you want to tell us what a domain wall is? is, is yeah, that, so a domain wall. Is easy wall, to explain? Yeah, so a domain wall is a wall between domains. So that sounds really obvious. And it, it sort <laughs> of is actually. So a domain is just a region of space. So you get if you get two different regions of space where there's, there's a sort of a characteristic of space which is different in the two regions, then a domain wall just separates those two regions. So this could be as simple as as a garden fence. So if you imagine like sort of terrace gardens with a with a garden fence going between two gardens, two adjacent gardens, then there's there's a separation there between one garden and another garden. And that's a domain wall. There's, that separation is the domain wall. Right. So one might have grass and one might have gravel in yeah. the backyard. So, the, so there'll be a garden fence which separates the two. So now there's some sort of interesting properties of domain wall. So going back to this garden thing, imagine you want to get a tennis ball from one garden to the other garden. So you can't actually pass it horizontal because there's a garden fence in the way. So what you have to do is you have to throw the tennis ball over the garden fence. Now, one of the cr- sort of crucial properties is that as it goes upwards, it gains gravitational potential energy. So that what that means is it has more energy when it's on the top of the garden fence than when it does when it's on the bottom. But the only way of getting the ball from one side to the other was to send it over that point of sort of large energy. And that's another very in- um, important property of the domain wall. It's sort of a region of lots and lots of energy. It's got loads of energy in there. Yeah, so you've got to put energy into getting the ball over the fence Yep. into your next-door neighbour's garden. Yes, um, and that's crossing the the boundary or the wall. Now, it's, the, these domain walls aren't physical objects, are they? No, it's it's really bizarre to try and imagine. Basically, a domain wall is sort of it's a blob of energy. It's not a thing. You can't go <laughs> up and touch it. But you could get a thermometer, and if if you pass the thermometer over the domain wall, it will suddenly read fifteen billion degrees or something. I mean, there'll be loads of energy, and then and then suddenly it'll go back to normal. It's making me think of force fields in Star Trek or something. It's a, <laughs> a point in space separating yeah. two, two places. That's exactly what a domain wall is. A, po- a, a point in space separating two different regions. And then that separating region is a ludicrous amount of energy. And it's also really, really thin. Really, really thin. It's sort of like, it's it's thinner than the thickness of a human hair. But it's got more energy in it than in all the atomic bombs that have ever been released. Hopefully. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of energy, and that's energy spread out, or is it? It's very dense. The it's energy. very dense. It's it's on this it's on this sort of sheet, sort of like a like a bed sheet, almost stretched out, which is only like a nanometer thick, thinner than the width of a human hair. This thing, and it's got a ludicrous amount of energy on it. 
This is a, a suggestion for explaining dark energy. So how would people go around finding this? If it, It's not a thing that you can see, but it's a place in space. How yes. would you spot it? So how you spot without going things? there? How you spot these things without going there? Right. Yeah. So there's there's this thing called light deflection. What what this is 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 basically photons. So light travel next to a big gravitational field. They get bent. So if you look at stars near to the sun during an eclipse, and the light from the background stars has to pass near to the sun's gravitational field, then the light gets bent and the stars seem to shift their position on the sky. And the same happens for galaxies at great distances in the universe as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, so these the photons that are behind these domain walls, as they pass towards us through the domain wall, they get shifted. So light rays that come through domain walls get shifted, and you can pick up that shift. You can they're work shifted out in what, position. They're shifted in position, and they get redshifted as well. Okay. So they're, they're sort of wavelength uh, changes as they pass through the domain wall, or next to a domain wall as well. So Does, you, do they always get redshifted, or could they be blue shifted? Uh, they can get redshifted or blue shifted, depending. Okay, on... so it can change the energy of the photon as it goes through this yeah. this barrier. Yeah. Okay, so it will change the direction the photon seems to be coming from, and it can change the energy of the photon. So you'd be able to presumably look for that in galaxies. Yeah. So in if, the if a universe. galaxy, if you calculate where a galaxy is supposed to be, or, or it passes behind a, a domain wall or something, it will shift, and it shifts what's called the cosmic microwave background, which is sort of the relic of the Big Bang, which is left over. And so one of the very important properties, actually, of Domain Wall is that it's got these... This, it is anti-gravity. It's got an anti-gravitational field. It's got a negative gravitational field. So if you get a Domain Wall and sit it there and put a star next to it, the star and the Domain Wall will repel gravitationally. Right. So that's that's a very... It's, I mean, you, you, you can, if you get two magnets and put north-north next to each other, they repel. Hmm. Um, whereas usually with gravity, what you think is everything gravitationally attracts, but it's not the case with domain walls. To get domain wall, you get a star, they'll repel each other, exactly as a north-north does on a magnet. So where do, where do vortons fit into this? Another word for a domain wall is actually a kink. Okay. So kinky. Uh, and now okay. we've got to explain vorton. So vorton basically just means superconducting. Right. So a superconductor is sort of like, it's a piece of wire which doesn't have resistance. So if you get a, if you get a, a wire and stick a battery on it, and set the battery away, the current will still keep going around the wire forever because there's no resistance. Right, that's so a on a normal wire, the, there is resistance, which basically means the, the electron flow is obstructed by the wire itself. Yeah, and so eventually it, it just stops. Yeah. But a superconductor, there is no resistance. There's no resistance. So it's a superconductor. So superconductors are used like CERN and stuff like that to make the, call the, the beams go around and stuff like that. When it's working. When it's working, <laughs> which I assume it is now, but it's not killed us all, which is nice. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so basically, so a, a, a kinky vorton is a, is, a, is a kink solution, one of these kinks, a domain wall, which is superconducting. So you imagine getting sort of a, a loop of domain wall. So like you get just sort of get a, like, like a, a sheet and then stick a battery on the sheet and pull the battery away. There's loads of charge that's going to live on the sheet now and the charge has to stay living on the sheet. So it becomes a superconducting sheet. Right, so it's, it's full of energy, and now it's got a charge on it. It's got as a charge well. on it as well. Yeah. Is it, it so is the charge like electrons, or it's, it's some other type of charge? It's another type of charge. Yeah. It's it's a bit of a bizarre sort of charge. It's not charge like electrons, like positive and negatives, that sort of thing. It's it's a different sort of a charge. That's much more difficult to explain. It's what's called a noted charge. But we'll we'll leave that to one side. Okay. So a, what an actual kinky vorton is is when you make your domain wall into a loop. So if you imagine getting a string, an open string, and then closing it back in itself, now it's a loop. That's quite obvious. And then you just get your loop, and then you charge it, and it becomes a superconducting loop. So rather than a loop, you sort of get a, a sheet, and then you get get your sheet, you charge it with this battery, you take the battery off, 
and it becomes a superconducting sheet. Right. And that's a kinky voton, a superconducting the- sheet. So these, these things are bubbles. They, these things are loops. So a kinky voton is a loop. And then these currents, this, this sort of almost charge, sort of stabilises it. So if, if, you, if you get the, one of these, these sheets and close it back on itself without charge, it will collapse. It's basically like a massive elastic band. So there's loads of energy on these, on these domain walls and it just collapses like an elastic band. So is it, is it best to think of a voton as, as a, an elastic band or as a bubble? A soap bubble. So a three-dimensional Vorton is a soap bubble, whereas a two-dimensional Vorton is an elastic band. Because a domain wall in three dimensions is a sheet, whereas a domain wall in two dimensions is a line. Okay. Because you're, it's separating two regions of space, which is just flat anyway. Right. So it's just a line. So if for a three-dimensional Vorton, if you had two of them and they're like soap bubbles, mm. could you get similar types of, sort of structures that you get... Or if you have soap bubbles, where you get some one sat on top of an, a small bubble sat on top yeah. of another bubble. I assume so, yeah. I mean, it's, they're really difficult to make. That's one of my projects now, is to try and figure out how to make stable blobs. Right. It sounds ludicrous so, uh, to make stable, stable blobs, but it's quite <laughs> difficult. So how many of them do you think there would be in the universe? Are they going to be bumping into each other on a regular basis or never see each um, other? It's it's not really like a disconnected bubble. It's the whole universe is in like a lattice of these bubbles. Right. So it's like a network of bubbles. And so the, the sort of cell size between each thing is sort of a few galaxies diameter or something. Okay, so it's like a foam. It's a foam. A foam, like you'd see on your washing up yeah. in your sink. Yeah, that's, that's exactly And the galaxies what... exist in the, within the soap bubbles. Yep. So the, so the elastic dark energy model, which uses domain walls, is, is, a, is that the universe is a foam of domain walls. If it collapses, what happens to all that energy? All the energy... It gets radiated away in like gravitational waves and lots of photons and all that sort of thing. So if if there was one collapsing, I guess it probably wouldn't be too good to be stood anywhere nearby. Yeah, you want to be as far away as you possibly can because there's a lot of energy which gets released very quickly. And right. these things collapse at the speed of light as well. Okay, which is very very fast. But we we've never observed these. These are as we said earlier. These are these are theoretical ent- ideas. Entirely that theoretical might be. objects that exist on pen and paper and in a computer. They've never ever been observed. Um, but the hope is that we can figure out how to look for these things properly. So if they do observe, we're starting to think of ways to, to find them and be able to spot them in our observations. Yeah, so so that's one of the other lines of work. So we've got to figure out what the universe looks like if it has all these kinky vortons in them. Are there any sort of uh, signatures which you've got to go and look for that you can't explain any other way other than with these kinky vortons? Okay, so I think I've got my my head around these kinky vortons. There's some kind of sheet separating two parts of space they've got charge on them some kind of charge that that travels around these sheets they've got lots of energy and they they wrap around and, and create loops yep. in space exactly. and they're, they're also they've also got anti-gravity so these the, the gravitational field of these these closed loops these sheets is actually negative they're they're balls of anti-gravity in some sense which that's is pretty a cool. good thing. It's a ball of anti-gravity. <laughs> that's that's really good. I like that. That is we're properly in the world of Star Trek now. Yeah, I'm not totally sure if my supervisor's going to shoot me now. <laughs> so there they are, being anti-gravity. Um, yeah. So, so if that, in in the middle of two galaxies, the anti-gravitational field of this ball will accelerate galaxies away from each other, which is what we observe. Right. What we have never observed is these loops themselves. Presumably there would be methods, like we were saying before about deflecting light, you'd be able to, there are methods that in the future people might be able to use to, to look for them. Yeah, exactly. So some people have done some calculations which say 
if these things are there, they produce these signatures. Um, so looking at light deflection and stuff like that. But the problem is that instruments at the moment aren't sensitive enough to be able to pick up these these signatures or sort of distinguish them from other other things. Right. So it's something for the future to to build better experiments and stuff to be able to look for these things. Well, thank you very much for explaining what kinky vortons are. Dark energy, different ideas of dark energy are things that everyone is interested in who probably listens to the Jodcast. And it's nice to hear about some of the theoretical ideas that people are working on. So thank you for explaining it so well to us, Jonathan. Uh, no problem. Thanks for that, Stuart. And now we come on to the part of the show where we talk about all those little odds and ends that we can't fit in anywhere else. So to start off with, I've got a little bit of news from NASA. Um, they're getting the public to vote for the final wake-up songs on the space shuttle missions. So for STS-133, they've compiled a list of 40 previous wake-up songs and are getting the public to vote on them. What I think is slightly more interesting is STS-134. They're getting people to actually write their own songs, upload it, and then people at NASA are going to decide on a shortlist and then the public can vote for those. So I was thinking maybe we should have a Jogcast song. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice idea. I don't know if we can make something out of the theme music or someone can write a song about the Jogcast, but... Well, there was an artist before that made a little Jotcast song. Yes, wasn't I there? did hear that one. Yeah. So maybe we could do something along those lines again. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'm sure the, the NASA astronauts would love to wake up to the Jotcast. <laughs> so there's a nice um, media release this week about Pulsars. Yay! It's work done by uh, CSIRO members. So that's down in Australia? That's Australia, yes. But some people from uh, Bonn also worked on this. And what they've done is they've used pulsars to measure the masses of all the objects in our solar system. How do you do that? Well, that's the interesting thing, because normally you would do it by you know, looking at the orbits of, of, the, of the objects itself. But you know how pulsars work, right? We've talked about this before. I'm <laughs> well, sure. Maybe you should refresh our memories. Okay, let's quickly refresh your memories then. So pulsars are very compact object it spins very quickly around its axis with a period of sometimes several milliseconds and it emits radio waves in a beam so it's sort of like a lighthouse and when the beam points towards the earth you see a little flash of radio emission and you can use that to keep track of the period of that pulsar so it's a clock and when you observe that clock from the earth you will see variations in the arrival time of these pulses because the earth rotates around its own axis and the rotor rotates around the sun now you can simply correct for that because you know how the earth rotates um, except that it depends on the center of mass from our solar system so the rotation of the earth around the sun depends on how the mass in the solar system is distributed so when you have a big planet like jupiter for example that will show up in your in your data from the pulsar because it changes the solar system center of mass what we call the barycenter and you have to correct for that. And if you don't correct for that exactly right, you will still see a little bit of a periodicity in your data with a period of, say, 12 years. That's the period of Jupiter around the Sun. So if you don't get the mass of Jupiter exactly right, we will still see it in our data from the pulsars. So you just fine-tune the, the mass of Jupiter until you don't see anything at all anymore. For us, it's like noise. So when the noise disappears, you know you have the mass exactly right. And you can do this for all the objects in the solar system. And that's what they've done. And they came up with the most accurate mass estimates that have been published uh, until today. Wow. I never would have thought that you could use pulsars for that. 
There you go. Pulse has <laughs> Yet a very another use for them. You can do might, so many things with them. I might have to change my opinion on them. Oh, what's your opinion now then? <laughs> I, won't, I don't think that, that needs to be said on air. <laughs> Talking of planets, this week has been quite exciting for people who are looking for planets around other stars. There have been two announcements this past week. First from the European Southern Observatory... Um, the HARPS instrument on ESO's 3.6-metre telescope at La Silla in Chile has been used to detect five or maybe seven planets around a star. So the five definite detections are planets that are like Jupiter. They're giant gas stars, which isn't all that exciting because the majority of planets that have been discovered so far are gas giants like Jupiter or, or Neptune. What's more interesting is that they reckon there's an extra two planets around this star, one of which is more like Saturn, so about 65 times the mass of the Earth. And the final one would be a small exoplanet, 1.4 times the mass of the Earth, which would make it the least massive exoplanet ever discovered. And this is very exciting. Yeah, so how did they manage to detect those Earth-like planets? So HARPS is a spectrograph, and what they do is they measure the wobble of a star as the planet goes around it so when you've got a star in a planet a planet orbiting it they don't the, the planet doesn't just go around the star the star kind of also goes around the planet so the the star's position changes slightly right. so they've actually managed to detect a wobble of three kilometers per hour which as they say is slower than walking speed <laughs> which i think is is pretty incredible so so that means that these planets have to be very close to the star. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. While it's really exciting to find these planets that are maybe 1.5 times the mass of the Earth, they are so close to their star. You that... wouldn't want to live there, would you? No, I don't think there's any amount of sun cream that could, <laughs> <laughs> could stop you frying that close to a star. The other discovery was by Kepler, which is an American NASA mission, and they've discovered a system of two Saturn-sized planets, and then they think a third planet that is, again, about... 1.5 times the size of the Earth. And Kepler's slightly different. Kepler measures the dip in the light from the star as the planet goes in front of it. So this is called the transiting method. Unfortunately, they released this press release a couple of days after Harp. So Harp's, I think Harp's trumps it. <laughs> Seven planets versus three. But it was very exciting times for exoplanet discoveries. Yeah, so do you know what the score is at the moment? There's more than 400 by now. I think it? it's coming up to 500. 500. It's, it's quite hard to say because there are true detections and then there are maybe detections I'm not sure. right. it's really if you actually stop and think about that that's so incredible how fast it went I know you know what the first planet detection was outside the solar system let me guess it was around a pulsar hey well done oh <laughs> uh, Roy it's good to have you back <laughs> nice to be here for a change <laughs> We've been mentioning recently on the Jogcast that the sun is becoming more active. It's finally coming out of its solar minimum. People are starting to see solar flares, solar prominences, sunspots. And another press release that was out a few days ago was from the new solar telescope at the Big Bear Solar Observatory. I think that's a great name for an observatory. <laughs> that's fantastic. And they've taken the most detailed visible light image of a sunspot ever. And it's a very pretty picture. I think it looks like the Eye of Sauron. <laughs> Evil sunspot. Yeah, other people have likened it to a sunflower, though, which is maybe a bit nicer. <laughs> but this has been done using a technique called adaptive optics, where you have your mirror on your telescope and it can deform to adapt to the atmospheric conditions. Yeah, so they didn't make this picture with a space telescope. It's a ground-based no, this, telescope. No, this is on the ground, and they just pointed the telescope up 
change the mirror for the atmosphere and managed to get this image, which is incredible. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's it's very nice. Nice indeed. Finally, if you were on Twitter on the 26th of August, you might have noticed a hashtag appearing called Astro Movies, which was started by the Jogcast's Adam Averson. And this started as something just within Jodrell Bank and spiralled. Basically, you take the title of a movie and you make it astronomical. So some of my favourites are Gone with the Solar Wind, <laughs> Lord of the Ring Nebula. Mm-hmm. We also had Lord of the Einstein Ring. Men in Black Holes. And someone here came up with Jod Castaway. <laughs> so we managed to save all of those. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if it will still show up on Twitter if you go and search for the hashtag Astro Movies. But if you got any, have you got any, Roy? I, I can't think of one. No, moment, it's, but it's, it's actually me quite some hard. time. I know a lot of movies. Okay, by the end of the show. I want one by the end of the show. I'll start thinking about it. <laughs> but yeah, if you've got any, email us or get in touch and let us know what what ones you come up with. I ended up going for some really obscure movies to try and try and fit them in. And if you want some inspiration about names of astronomical objects to put into movies, here's Ian Morrison to tell you what you can see in the northern night sky in September. Well, the night sky in September. The nights are drawing in now. You don't have to wait up quite so late in order to see the heavens. And there's actually quite a bit to see this month. Let's start with the stars. After sunset, fairly high overhead in the south, is that rather lovely region of the sky where you've got Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. The brightest stars of these three constellations, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, make up what's called the Summer Triangle. And I think that name might have been given to it by uh, Sir Patrick Moore. If you have binoculars, you can start from Altair and move up towards Vega. About a third of the way along, there's a rather darker region in the sky, the Cygnus Rift. It's It's where there's a dust cloud obscuring quite a bit of light from the Milky Way. And in there, you find a rather nice little asterism or cluster. It's called Brocky's Cluster. And it looks a bit like an upside-down coat hanger. So it's normally called the coat hanger. Rising in the southeast, but somewhat lower down, is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, the upside-down horse. I'll come to one object in Pegasus in the highlights, but you can see M31, the nearest giant galaxy to us, the galaxy in Andromeda. If you start at the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus, actually called Alpha Andromedae because it's actually in Andromeda, and you curve round up and to the left two stars, then turn sharp right, move one star, and then the same distance again, you should see a little hazy glow in binoculars. And if it's very dark, you can even see it with your unaided eye. That's, in fact, the great galaxy in Andromeda, M31. It's about 2.5 million light-years away and is perhaps 20% bigger than our own Milky Way galaxy. Together, we make up the two largest galaxies in what's called our local group of galaxies. Rising in the east, with the Milky Way arching overhead, we have the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus. If you follow down from Cassiopeia towards Perseus, you may spot a little hazy glow with your eyes. Binoculars will just show it as two little clusters called the Perseus Double Cluster. 
and it's a lovely object to observe in a telescope. So quite a nice skyscape in the evenings in the latter part of the summer. Well, what about the planets? There are two planets that really are the best this month, Jupiter and also Mercury. We'll start with Jupiter. It's now rising in the east about 9 o'clock, and at magnitude minus 2.9 is really very obvious, and you can see it for much of the night. Obviously, it's rising gradually earlier as the month progresses, so at about 7 o'clock it rises by the beginning of October. It comes into what is called opposition on the 21st of September, and that's when it's opposite the sun, and therefore due south around midnight UT, we must remember. So it's an excellent time to observe. It's actually well worth observing with a telescope now, because temporarily, we assume, it's lost its south equatorial belt. Normally you see two quite dark bands on either side of the equator, the equatorial belts, and one of those has now gone. But at the same time, what's called the Great Red Spot has become more visible. It's slightly darker than it sometimes is. So it's well worth having a look with a telescope. We'll come back to Jupiter in the highlights later on. Well, Saturn essentially has now gone from view. It passes behind the Sun on the 30th of September. You might just glimpse it very low down in the west, low to the right of Venus during the first week, but really wait for a couple of months when you can see it before dawn. Mercury, that passes behind the Sun, which is called inferior conjunction on September the 3rd. So obviously you haven't got any chance of seeing it at all in early September. But it then comes out behind the sun, and it actually rises quite high in the sky, and I'll come back to that uh, in our highlight. It's actually the best time to see Mercury before dawn this year. Well, Mars and Venus are together very close in the sky. I'll come back to those again in the highlights. Mars is at magnitude about plus 1.5. It's, it's very low in the southwest after sunset. The angular size at about four arc seconds just over means that you won't really see anything, unless, of course, you've got access to the Hubble Space Telescope, which maybe somebody has. So we'll come back to those as a pair a little bit later on. So now let's have a look at these highlights. Nothing particularly spectacular this month, but we do have a very good dawn apparition of Mercury. Now, Mercury never gets terribly far away from the Sun. I think 18 degrees is the maximum and therefore it tends to be lost in the pre-dawn glare or the twilight after sunset. You see it best when the ecliptic, which is basically the line of where the planets lie, is at the greatest angle to the horizon. And that happens around dawn in the autumn and around sunset in the spring. And this month it reaches greatest elongation on the 19th. Its magnitude then is minus 0.3, so binoculars will easily pick it up, and once you've seen it in binoculars, you should be able to see it with your unaided eye. It's actually about 15 degrees above the horizon for quite a while, so there's a good chance of seeing it reasonably high in the pre-dawn sky. I've been trying to include a messier object that's been imaged with the Fawkes telescope, taken by students at schools largely in the UK, but also across Europe. And this time I've chosen M15, which is a globular cluster in Pegasus. If you look on a star chart, you see the head, the mane of Pegasus, 
arching upwards because, of course, Pegasus is upside down. If you take the last two stars that make up the neck and the head and follow upwards and a bit to the left of Delphinus, in fact, towards the star Deneb, not far away, you'll come across with binoculars a little fuzzy glow. And that's the globular cluster M15. Uh, a telescope, a few inches in diameter, will show the individual stars. And the brightest is, in fact, at magnitude plus 12.6. It's one of the oldest known clusters and dates back to just over 13,000 million years. It's lying at a distance of 33,000 odd light years, but still shines at magnitude plus 6.4. Overall luminosity is in fact 360,000 times that of the sun. And there's now a suspicion it has a black hole at its heart. Well worth having a look at. Well, right at the very beginning of September, Mars and Venus are very close, and between them, in fact, lies the star Spica in Virgo. There's only a few degrees between both Venus and Mars, so you'll see them nicely in a binocular field of view. On the 10th, there's a very thin crescent moon just below Spica, and on the 11th, the moon will have moved up to the left of Venus. So, if it is clear, low down in the west after sunset, a nice little view of Venus and Mars. Again, I've been trying to include a little region of the moon to look at with a telescope, or even perhaps with binoculars. This month, I've chosen Sinus Iridum, not Iridium, Sinus Iridum, which is the Bay of Rainbows. And it's a curved inlet of Oceanus Procellarum. It looks particularly nice when the terminator crosses the bay, so that the tops of the mountains to the left of the bay are in Sun Lake and look rather like the backbone of a dinosaur. And according to Virtual Moon Atlas, which is a program you can download off the web, that should happen on the evening of the 18th of September. So if it's clear, it's well worth having a look. And on the Night Sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, or just put Night Sky into Google, it should come up. I've made a little drawing just to show you what it looks like at sunrise. I'll come back to Jupiter. It's very close to Uranus, and both are within a degree of each other as they reach opposition, that's opposite the Sun, on the 21st of September. And on the night sky page, I've included a chart that shows the relative positions of Jupiter and Uranus throughout the month. Jupiter is in fact at its largest angular size that it ever gets. In fact, it's bigger than it's been since 1963, or will be again until 2022. But there's not actually an awful lot in it. The reason is that at this particular month, Jupiter is closest to the Sun in its orbit, and at the same time, during August and September, the Earth is furthest from the Sun. So the distance between the Earth and Jupiter is at an absolute minimum. Well, I've mentioned before, Jupiter's well worth going out to look at with a telescope. If you haven't got one, they're not that expensive now. Why not go out and buy one and enjoy looking at some of the lovely things we can see in the heavens? Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field to tell us what you can see in the southern night sky. 
September sees the welcome return of Jupiter in our evening sky. Rising in the east after sunset appears as a very bright star. Jupiter takes approximately 12 years to complete one orbit around the sun, and on average moves through a zodiac constellation each year. He was named after the king of the gods in Greek mythology. The stories associated with his interactions with humans are decidedly dodgy, to say the least. In Māori, Jupiter is known as either Padarau or Kopunui. In the early 1600s, Galileo pointed his telescope at Jupiter, revealing its disk and four stars that moved around the planet. Known today as the Galilean moons, these four moons range in size from 3,000 kilometres to 5,000 kilometres. The innermost Io is the most volcanically active object in the solar system. The continual gravitational tug-of-war with Jupiter and the other large moons stretch this moon, creating friction heating and produces a volcanic activity. Europa has the smoothest surface of all the objects in the solar system. This is likely due to an underlying ocean of water covered by a layer of ice many kilometres thick. With water and warmth, Europa may have an environment capable of sustaining life. The two outer moons appear to be frozen balls of rock and ice. Jupiter has currently 63 known moons. Jupiter turned out to be the most massive planet in our solar system. A small telescope revealed bands on the planet due to different composition cloud structures and one of the equatorial belts can be seen in the Great Red Spot, a storm two and a half times the diameter of the Earth, and this has been observed for the last 200 years. Weighing in at 318 times the mass of the Earth, Jupiter is heavier than all the other planets in the solar system, but is still tiny compared to our star, the Sun. Venus is the evening star, appearing in the west after sunset. Mars, much fainter, is below. Vega can be found shining in the northern horizon and the Milky Way spans our sky from north to south. Orange Antares, the scorpion's heart, is west of the zenith overhead. The scorpion's tail, the fishhook of Maui, curls towards the zenith and the southern cross is lying on its side in the southwest along with the pointers. Behind the tail of the scorpion is Sagittarius, often called the teapot due to the bright stars of this constellation, resembling this very useful device. Sagittarius is sometimes seen as firing his arrow towards the scorpion to avenge Orion's death. Heading northwards along the Milky Way, we find Aquila the Eagle with the bright star Altair, the rising one. Māori called Aquila Pōtutirangi Humu. Altair is the twelfth brightest star in the night sky and one of the closest at 16 light years away from us. This has allowed this star to be imaged. It was discovered that Altair spins so rapidly that it is distinctly oblate. Along with Vega and Lyra and Deneb and Cygnus, they form a distinct triangular shape. In the Northern Hemisphere, it is known as the Summer Triangle, and in the Southern Hemisphere, the Winter Triangle. Canopus, the second brightest star in the night sky, is low on our southern horizon. In Greek mythology, Canopus was a navigator of King Menelaus. To Mari, it is Atutahi, the High Chief of the Heavens. Due to its southerly position, Canopus is circumpolar from New Zealand. Originally called Alpha Argus, it was part of the constellation of the great ship Argus. Argus has since been split up, and now it is the brightest star in Carina, the keel, and known as Alpha Carinae. The Hipparchus satellite revealed Canopus to be 310 light years away, and with a mass 8.5 times that of our Sun, and an estimated brightness 15,000 times. The constellation of Carina is home to a large number of clusters. IC 2602, known as the Southern Pleiades, covers a full degree of the sky and surrounds the third magnitude star, Beta Carina. Binoculars reveal a large number of stars. 
nearby is NGC 3532, also visible to the unaided eyes of haze near the famous Eta Carina Nebula. John Herschel considered it to be the finest cluster he had ever seen. It is a bright cluster of 150 stars covering one degree of the sky, twice the diameter of the moon. It is a glorious sight in binoculars. Small telescopes show small, straight and curved lines and a number of bright orange stars. NGC 2516 is another beautiful open cluster visible to the unaided eye from a dark sky as long as the moon is absent. It once again is a glorious sight in binoculars or a small telescope when its scattered groups and irregular sprays of stars can be seen. Three bright orange stars contrast well with the rest of the cluster. Closer to home, the sun has begun to wake up from solar minimum and sunspots are reappearing. During August, a number of coronal mass ejections occurred that sent large numbers of charged particles out into our solar system. If these interact with the Earth's atmosphere, they can create auroral displays. Due to the northerly latitude of land in the southern hemisphere, only bright or strong auroral displays can be observed. So northern hemispheres observers tend to see more auroral displays than us. As activity on the sun increases, we will all hopefully see more displays. Thank you very much. This is John Peel from Carter Observatory, signing off for another month, and I wish you clear skies and good stargazing. Thanks for that, John. And now we get on to the part of the show where we review your feedback. We haven't had any emails this month. Um, we did forget to remind you guys on the last show that if you want to email in your questions for Ask an Astronomer, there's a form on the website to do that. So if you've got any questions that you want Tim or someone else to answer, email in and let us know. Roy, what have you got for us on the forum? Yeah, I understand last month I was um, Ian Cohen had a question about black holes. Earth Eunice was kind enough to provide us with a link uh, about a lecture on black holes by Professor Alex Filipenko. Uh, the address is www.astrosociety.org slash education slash podcast. And I'm sure we'll put a link on that on the show notes. Yeah, we'll link to that. Thanks also to Reesey Pie for making us very jealous with your awesome meteor watching experience. Unfortunately, we didn't have such luck here in the UK. <laughs> it's always clouded, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> also on Twitter, Andy Castle is making me feel jealous again. He's been apparently been in a hot tub with a clear sky and a cold beard to watch the stars. It's just not fair. <laughs> it's really not fair. And Physics Chris says, if it's raining where you are, at least there is a job cast. And on Facebook... Philip Lloris has a question for all of us. Uh, back in the 90s, he read a very funny spoof about the lives of astronomers entitled The Ignorant Astronomer. They disappeared about 10 years ago. And he wonders if anybody heard of it or knows where to find it. I've never heard of that. No, me neither. No. But surely one of the listeners must have. Yeah, well, 10 years ago was a very long time for the internet. It is a long time for the internet, <laughs> but not that long Someone, ago. someone out there must have it. I'm sure there must be. So let us know if you know anything more about the ignorant astronomer. And we've had a postcard. Chris Barber from Chepstow in Wales has been to Ireland and visited the Great Telescope at Burr and sent us a wonderful postcard with a picture of the telescope on it. He said that he's had a couple of clear nights with wonderful dark skies over there and jod on. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net or you can leave a message on the forum, forum.jodcast.net. You can tweet at us at twitter.com slash jodcast. We're on Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And speaking of YouTube, I should probably say that 
in the middle of August, the Jogcast team went on a somewhat crazy adventure. We decided that we were going to visit all of the telescopes in the E-Merlin array, which are spread across the country. We started in Manchester at six in the morning and went down to Cambridge, across to Deford, and then worked our way back up the country. It was a very long day. Uh, it's all been filmed for a future Jogcast video, but during the day we were filming little bits on our phones. Of course, the phones were in airplane mode. <laughs> so that there was no interference. And those videos are on YouTube, so there is finally some new content up there. And if you want to know more about the clouds that are ruining your astronomical observations, the, some of the people over at the Atmospheric Science Department here at the University of Manchester have just started up a new podcast called The Barometer. So if you want to know more about clouds and volcanoes and all that kind of stuff, then head over there and have a listen, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So all that's left to say is thanks to Jonathan Pearson for being interviewed. And Roy, have you come up with an astronomical movie yet? I didn't have much time to think about it. <laughs> I know, I really I? put you on the spot there, didn't I? Well, the best thing I could come up with is the Neutron Star Trek. You just can't stop thinking about Pulsars, can you? I can't, no. It's oh. the only thing I think about. Well, it's been good to have you back. Yeah, it's nice to have been here. Thanks. And hopefully you'll be back in Manchester again if you're still working for the University of Manchester. I will be popping in once in a while, yes. Good. So until next time, jod on. Bye, people. Julian Deer 2455432. After successfully completing this week's task, the astronomers have been given a luxury meal. Remember, vote for the one you want to win, not the one you want to evict. To vote for Tim, call 0161-275-4165. To vote for Neil, call 0161-275-4202. To vote for Jen, call 0161-275-4196. To vote for Adam, call 0161-275-4144.